Hey, hello, and welcome back, Idol Edges. This is the first episode of It Happened Here for 2022. It's also officially six months now since I started IHH, which is kind of amazing to me. I know that I've been quiet the last month because I was just too burnt out and tired to create, and I want to thank you for bearing with me through that. I got so many great messages from people who said, we love your content, but your health comes first. So thank you for your compassion. And personally, I think it's awesome that we're collectively starting to embrace the need for rest. as like, I don't know, the antidote to the girl boss and hustle narratives, which I think have become quite toxic. I honestly can't believe that I've already done six months of this show. We've put out a total of 19 regular episodes and five patron-exclusive episodes, which we kicked off in September, with loads more to follow. In the spirit of the new year, I am declaring that this is the start of a new season, even though 19 episodes is kind of an arbitrary cutoff. So the numbering won't make tons of sense, but neither does much in life, so we're just going to run with it. As usual, before I leap into the story, I want to take just a minute for patron appreciation. Those are the guys who go off to patreon.com and pledge a small monthly amount to support the show. So big, big thanks to Chelsea Tucker, Lauren Edwards, and Cindy Morick for signing on to support me and IHH. Thank you so much. And now, on with the show. It's the 13th of December, 2006, and Najwa Peterson is at the Cape Town International Airport, waiting for a flight to arrive. Her husband, Talib, is on his way back from London after the opening night of his new show. The production is another feather in the cap of a man whose career has spanned decades and stretched from Cape Town to London's West End and New York's Broadway. Talib is a beloved figure, in South African music and musical theatre circles, the man behind some of the most poignant and moving pieces of musical theatre that have ever come out of Cape Town. But if Najwa is excited by the prospect of seeing her famous husband walk through the arrivals area, it probably isn't obvious to any onlookers. She's on her phone, placing yet another call to a man she's already phoned 22 times during the course of that day. The arrangements she's put in place for Talib's arrival seem to be falling through, and Najwa is agitated. She needs this sorted out. So it probably doesn't help her mood when Talib's flight is delayed, and she has to pick up her phone yet again to inform her contact, Fahim Hendricks, of another change in the schedule. But Fahim has bad news of his own anyway. The guys aren't going to make it at all now. They can't find transport, and the whole thing has to be called off. It's an infuriating setback, one that Najwa is likely stewing over when her husband finally arrives, and she drives him home to their house in Khasmir Street, Athlone. She's been planning this for almost two weeks. Today was the day Talib Peterson was supposed to die in an apparent hijacking gone wrong, arranged by Najwa herself, his own wife. This is episode one, for season two of It Happened Here, Song and Dance, The Murder of Talib Peterson.
Tilly Peterson was born on the 15th of April, 1950, which incidentally is the same day as my mum. Hi, mummy. He was born in District 6, which at the time was a diverse and thriving area in the centre of Cape Town. His musical talent was apparent very early, and he soon made a name for himself performing in the Twitter Never Yard, or Second New Year's Carnival. This is a festival held annually in Cape Town on the 2nd of January, where hundreds of minstrels and thousands of onlookers dance through the streets of the mother city. It's a uniquely South African spectacle, and although it's vibrant and upbeat, it has dark roots that trace back to slavery in the Cape. The full history of this is both disturbing and fascinating, but not something I really have the scope to get into. And honestly, I don't want to do it if I can't give it the time and space it deserves. But if you are interested, there is a section on this at essayhistory.org.za, which is worth a read. Six-year-old Talib joined his father's minstrel troupe and would spend the rest of his life in music and theatre, writing, performing and directing. Arguably, Talib's most famous work is District 6 The Musical, which he created in conjunction with longtime creative partner David Kramer. This incredible piece of work is set against the backdrop of the forced removals of the residents of that area, when the apartheid machine and its hateful, racist laws declared that the area would be designated a whites-only area, and they moved in with their guns and bulldozers to remove the non-white people primarily coloured people, robbing them of their homes and heritage, including Talib's family. But that's just one of many award-winning shows that constitute his legacy. In 1999, David and Talib's musical Cat and the Kings, which had runs on the West End and Broadway, earned him a coveted Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Musical. To put that into context, the other nominees in the category that year were Saturday Night Fever, Whistle Down the Wind, and Rent. The cast of that show were also collectively nominated for Best Actor, something pretty unusual for the category, and they won, taking home the trophy instead of fellow nominee Hugh Jackman, who was headlining Oklahoma at the time. Talib was twice married and had six kids. Najwa was his second wife. The man she was on the phone with that day in the airport, Fahim Hendricks, was an old acquaintance. His brother, Ibrahim, used to work for Najwa's family as a truck driver before an accident had left him paralysed. According to at least one source, this created some bad blood between Najwa's wealthy family and the working-class Hendricks brothers. But Najwa has taken the opportunity through the years to help them out loaning them money to start a small business of their own and providing smaller amounts each time Fahim has shown up on her doorstep, maybe by way of reparations, or maybe just so she could have him in her pocket. So when she runs into him again at her daughter's school on the 1st of December, right before school holidays, it's no surprise that Fahim once again asks for a loan, 10,000 rand this time, to help him kickstart his latest business venture. Sensing an opportunity, Najwa agrees to loan him not only the 10,000, but a great deal more, 100,000 in total if he can fulfill a request for her. She tells Fahim he needs, she needs someone killed, and pointedly asks whether he can do it, or whether there's 
anyone he knows that would be up to this awful task. Now, according to Fahim's much later testimony, he was initially completely opposed to this plan, even before he knew who the intended victim was. But Najwa pesters him. She calls him incessantly, convinced she's identified just the right kind of desperate man to bring this plan to fruition. And she's right. Eventually, Fahim caves and admits that yes, he might have someone in mind who can do the deed. In fact, the person he's thinking of is currently living with him and his wife. Abdur Imjedi is a recently released convict. If anyone knows how to organize a murder for hire, Fahim reckons, it's Abdur. Fahim approaches Abdur and, as expected, the other man quickly pinpoints some likely killers. Three young men he knows that live in a nearby suburb called Hanover Park. It is these three that Najwa is relying on the day she picks up to leap from the airport, and it's these three that ultimately let her down, through their apparent inability to organize anything as simple as transport to the site of a would-be murder. Najwa, however, is not about to be deterred. She arranges with Fahim for them to try again the very next day. Talib will be performing with his 14-year-old son at a local theater, the perfect opportunity, she reckons, for him to be gunned down after the show. If it even enters her mind how traumatizing this will be for the boy, she doesn't show it. She keeps up her relentless calls to Fahim and is yet again bitterly disappointed when the three guys who are meant to fulfill the contract are again a no-show. Transport issues, they claim. This time, it's become apparent that the guys are not up to getting the job done. It doesn't take long, though, for Abdur to offer up two new candidates. These men, Walid Hassan and his employer, Jefferson Snyders, somehow agree to carry out Najwa's plan the very next night, the 16th of December. They will enter the Peterson residence on the pretext of robbery and murder Talib in one of the two places he's most likely to be found, his studio or his bedroom. And yes, I did say Talib's bedroom, which is perhaps a good place to segue into a little bit of the history leading up to Najwa's decision to have her husband killed, and how their relationship had got to such a dark place. You see, by this point, Talib and Najwa have been sleeping in separate bedrooms for a long time. Their marriage has always been a bit rocky, in no small part because of Najwa's struggles with her mental health, including depression, manic episodes, and violent outbursts. In addition to her erratic and often scary behavior, it seems that Najwa has established a controlling and manipulative hold over Talib during their relationship. In later testimony, Talib's musical partner, David Kramer, notes that all of the money Talib earned from his shows was going into Najwa's bank account or that of her family's fruit export business. Despite his immense success, the man had no money of his own, and worse, no agency over how that money was spent. The only payments that entered into his personal account were the ones required for monthly contributions to his life insurance policies. One of these policies, by the way, had been started very recently and was worth a cool 5.3 million rand. The beneficiary of this policy was Talib's youngest daughter, Zainab, 
But of course, the money would be managed by her mother Najwa in the event of Talib's untimely demise, because Zainab was still a minor. Yes, you can see where this is going. In addition to this financial incentive, Talib may have been planning to divorce or at least separate from Najwa for a while before the events of December 2006. He had become desperately unhappy in the marriage. His wife had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals over their time together, and she had once previously given him cause for deep concern for his own life. In April 2006, Najwa had returned from a stint in hospital where she was being treated for depression. She seemed, according to Talib's daughters, to be doing okay when she returned home, though. The family headed to their separate rooms for the night, as usual, except that at this stage, Talib and Najwa still shared a bed, a situation that would change dramatically in just a few hours. Talib had drifted off to sleep that night when he was awoken painfully and violently. Najwa had stabbed him in the neck. One of the older children was alerted to the fact that something was terribly wrong when her younger sister came into her room, saying that their father was calling for help. She went and stood at the door of the room, listening intently. She heard her father saying, Najwa, no. So she tentatively entered the dark room and called out to him. His reply when it came was that she should turn on the light, but not to panic when she did so. The scene that greeted her was like something out of a nightmare. Her stepmother was on the floor, on her knees, with a knife still in her hand, while Talib held her at bay. The room and its two occupants were covered in blood, so it took a few moments for her to realize that it was her father that had been stabbed. He was bleeding heavily, although she couldn't see from where at first. By this time, other members of the house started coming into the room, and Najwa was quickly subdued. Talib handed the knife to the domestic worker and told her to wash it, before he and Najwa were driven to a nearby medical facility for his wound to be treated and for Najwa to be held and returned to psychiatric care. Horrified by what they had seen that night, Talib's family urged him to open a case against his wife, but he declined. The incident was never reported to the police, and when Najwa returned to the house, the family simply started locking their bedroom doors at night. Having moved to his own room, Talib did the same. It's always hard to know what to make of a story like this as an outsider, and with the hindsight of knowing what would come later. I think it's quite natural to ask, but why didn't he leave her? And I think the answer is not unlike other victims of domestic abuse. And that's what Talib was. This kind of intimate partner violence is domestic abuse. Hell, I'd call it domestic terrorism if that didn't have a whole other meaning in, in another context. Of course men can be victims of domestic abuse. I'm not even going to enter into debate on that. And I like to think that I've been aggressively lefty liberal enough in prior episodes to scare away the misogynists who think otherwise. Gosh, if this is your first episode of it, of it Happened Here, welcome and good luck to you. If I've already pissed you off, please see yourself out. Anyone, at any age, can be a victim of domestic abuse, which includes mental, physical, sexual, or economic abuse. Typically, when we talk about this kind of abuse, it's not a single incident, 
Although, power to you if you have been able to extricate yourself before it becomes a pattern. Usually, domestic abuse starts off small and escalates into frequent, controlling, violent, belittling, or manipulative actions on the part of the abuser. There are many, many ways that this can show itself, and we don't know the ins and outs of the Petersons' marriage, but the financial control that Nadra was exerting over her husband is, to my mind, a big red flag of economic abuse, and that's predating this outburst of extreme violence. Although Najwa would later deny having any memory of the night she stabbed Talib, clearly whatever impulse was at work at that time didn't dissipate in the months that followed. And by the night of, the De- of December 16, 2006, Najwa's fourth scheme to murder her husband came into full effect. It was around 10pm when Talib got home from a party that Najwa hadn't attended, because she was apparently feeling sick. Talib prayed with her, a detail recounted by his daughter during her later testimony. He was still trying, despite everything, to be a present and caring husband. Najwa's son, daughter-in-law and their child were also at the house, along with Talib and Najwa's youngest, Zainab. The family settled in for the night, and Najwa would later testify that she too had an early night, having dosed up on meds and feeling tired as they took effect. She said she only knew what was going on when she woke up with a gun to her head and a man in a balaclava looming over her. Strangely, the security gate for their house was left open that night and the alarm system remained off. This was not their usual habit. The front door, it would emerge, was left slightly ajar. All the hired killers had to do was walk in. At around 11.40, two masked men did so, and they quickly tracked their target down in his bedroom. Walid had a gun in hand, and Jefferson came equipped with cable ties. He proceeded to tie Talib's hands, leaving him defenseless as an apparently bewildered Najwa entered the room and then tried to console her husband. Talib, however, apparently saw straight through this. He knew who was really calling the shots. He actually headbutted Najwa away as she tried to hug him, earning himself a punch to the face from Walid in retribution. As he lay bleeding and in pain on the floor, Najwa gently kissed his head. Then she led Walid to the safe to hand over the 27,000 rand in cash waiting for him there. The rest was to follow after Talib's policy paid out. She then followed Walid to her son's room, where he burst through the door and stole some more cash and other valuables, with Najwa wailing in the background as it happened. The pair returned to Talib's room, and on the way, Najwa instructed him to finish the job. Walid says that he did have some second thoughts when he saw the prostrate man on the floor, tears flowing down his face, gagged with a glove that Jefferson had used to silence him. He sent Jefferson outside to be a lookout and picked up a pillow to fold over the gun before he fired the shot. Walid says he hesitated then and that Najwa placed her hand over his in the fold of the pillow and so he's not clear who actually pulled the trigger. This little detail is something that we don't have anything to contradict 
but I am tempted to say that it sounds a lot like an attempt at blame mitigation. For her part, Najwa denies this. Either way, the shot entered through the back of Talib's neck, and reports suggest that he did die instantaneously, which I guess is a small mercy. By the time Najwa started phoning the family, she was apparently locked in her daughter Zainab's room, though she would later state that this had been the case all along, and that she had heard the shot being fired while on the phone with Talib's sister. The sister denies this and says that she herself had not heard a shot across the phone. She frantically tried to call the police hotline, but when she couldn't get through, headed to the nearest police station instead to report what was happening. When the police arrived, Najwa was apparently in a state of deep shock, unable to sensibly answer their questions, but somehow one detective noted, still in possession of not one but two cell phones, which is pretty odd considering the house had just been robbed. Even stranger, there were still valuables like watches and jewellery in the safe that the robbers had apparently forced her to open during the attack. It wasn't enough to immediately implicate her in the crime, but Najwa, it would turn out, was a pretty good architect of her own downfall. Her story was inconsistent, both at the time and later in testimony, and as time went by, she gave police plenty to work with to secure her eventual conviction. When asked that night to hand over her phones as evidence, Najwa first pleaded to keep one, and then when that was denied, asked if she could copy down a few numbers, which the officer allowed. This gave her enough time to try and erase the records of her phone calls to Fahim, though for whatever reason it seems she was only partially successful before the device was taken. It would be six long months before some of the evidence that was eventually used to convict her could be tied back to that same device. In the meantime, the police focused their efforts on Fahim, arresting him for possession of an unlicensed firearm, but not, it should be noted, the gun that was actually used in the murder. And then they started pressuring him to explain why exactly he had been in such constant contact with Najwa right up until Talib's murder. Apparently, when he was released on the gun charge, Fahim contacted a lawyer and asked for advice on what he should do if, hypothetically, he knew something about the case. He was clearly, at that stage, already thinking about how he could extricate himself from the situation, or at least mitigate the charges he'd inevitably be facing. He was told to keep some money aside for bail, around 20,000 rand, an amount that certainly wouldn't have made someone like Fahim, without a penny to his name, any more comfortable about his situation. Ultimately, Fahim cracked, and under questioning, he gives up his four co-conspirators, turning state's witness under the promise of protection from prosecution. He starts singing. He told them everything, how Najwa had chased him constantly to commit the murders or find her someone who would, how they'd planned the attempts, and how on that night in December, Najwa had finally gotten her way, murdering Talib before he'd be able to divorce her and take half her assets because of their communal marriage. In June 2007, Najwa, Abdur, Walid, and Jefferson were arrested for their parts in the murder of Talib 
and one of the most high-profile murder cases to take place in the city of Cape Town could finally be put to trial. Now, I know that I don't often have good things to say about the handling of murder cases by the South African police, but in this instance, they actually didn't spend the entire six months leading up to the arrest twiddling their thumbs. The police had a tricky situation on their hands once Fahim agreed to cooperate in their investigation. Because he'd been a participant in the plot, he was what was called an accomplice witness, meaning that there was clear incentive for him to cooperate with police and it would be up to the prosecution to provide the supporting evidence that would corroborate his claims. And this is where I get to involve, uh, or rather indulge, in some forensic geekery. It doesn't happen often in this country, you guys, so bear with me. Fahim's evidence was all based on one-sided communication with Najwa. She would call him, he never contacted her, and she had no direct involvement with the two killers, before the actual night of the murder. So what the police had was essentially reams and reams of cell phone data that they needed to somehow disentangle to link Najwa and the others to the crime. Even more importantly, they needed to do it in a way that would allow this evidence to be presented in crystal clear terms so that the full impact of the data could hit home in court. Oh, apparently it bugs some people that I say data and not data, and I have no opinion on the difference, which is weird because I have all the opinions one could ever need. Uh, I think it's just a learnt pronunciation thing. I might use them interchangeably even, I'm not sure. Uh, so if data is your thing and data upsets you, I'm sorry. Uh, I use both with no rhyme or reason as to which. And because there's no rhyme or reason to which one I use, I can't promise to change that. It's what comes out of my mouth as I'm talking. The prosecution needed to be sure that they could turn this DART data into a story, and they reached out to South Africa's Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, or CSIR, to find the truth hidden within the seemingly chaotic jumble of call records. Using the timestamps and the position of the various cell phone towers each call had triggered, the CSIR guys bought a map and a timeline of events to the courtroom. With all the details of when the calls had occurred and where they had been placed, they literally traced the convergence on Talib's house and the position of each of the participants through the events that unfolded. And here's the kicker, this is great stuff, CSIR. Remember the niggly detail that Najwa had given in her testimony, where she said she'd gone to bed early, doped up on meds, and was too tired to even leave her room before the attack? Well, Najwa had placed several calls that evening, some picked up by the cell phone tower close to the one side of the house, the side where her bedroom was, and the others picked up by the cell phone tower placing her on the other side of the property, near Talib's room, the last of which was made after 11pm. That's less than an hour before the killers would burst in, and a full two hours after she'd apparently gone to bed for the night. The judge presiding over the case later said that Najwa's testimony was, and I quote, festering with lies. She was found guilty. The combination of Fahim's testimony and the corroborating forensic evidence proving more than enough to put her behind bars. 
Najwa Peterson was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Walid and Abdur got 25 and 24 years respectively, while Jefferson, who claimed in court that he didn't even know that they were there to commit a murder until he got to the house, was sentenced to just 10 years. Two months ago, in November 2021, Abdur was freed on parole after serving 11 years. Wahid went before the parole board in early 2021, but was denied, and Najwa herself will become eligible for parole in November 2022. It's been 15 years since the murder of Telly Peterson, and this loss is naturally still keenly felt by friends and family, many of whom share memories of the impact that he had on their lives on Facebook in December, both this past year and in previous years on the anniversary of his death. David Kramer, for example, spoke about Talib's enthusiasm and positive outlook, as well as his incredible musical ability, how his music, including the now iconic District 6 musical, still resonates with younger up-and-coming singers, and how embedded it is in the culture and community of those displaced from District 6, their children and children's children. I also want to add, and it's a little bit of a non-sequitur, that the District 6 Foundation and Museum does incredible work in preserving and sharing the story of this space and its people, and they've taken incredible financial strain during the pandemic. I've made two small donations to them in the past year, and I'd love to ask my listeners to consider doing the same. That's it for today, but I'm going to play out on a promo for a fellow South African content creator. Here is Shane Campbell telling you about his project, The Creepy and Paranormal Channel. Haunted houses, paranormal activity, unsolved crime cases. These are but just a few of the topics I cover on my show. I'm Shane Campbell, host and founder of The Creepy and Paranormal Channel. If you are looking for stories of local and abroad, then give my show a listen. Episodes air on a weekly basis and can be found on YouTube as well as Spotify. And remember folks, don't forget to check under your bed tonight to find out what those scratchy noises are.